1: Scientists around the world are racing to develop effective therapeutics and a vaccine for COVID-19. But those looking further ahead are thinking about another serious question. How do we stop future pandemics from happening at all?
2: We're not going to defeat the pandemic era by waiting for vaccines. We need to get ahead of the curve on this stuff.
1: Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio, our weekly show on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha science correspondent at The Economist. Of the more than 300 diseases that emerged in the second half of the 20th century, more than 60% were zoonotic, meaning they spread from animals to humans. That's how scientists think SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, first appeared. Researchers think it came from bats. It arrived in humans via some other animal, in or near a wet market in the Chinese city of Wuhan.
3: So if we understand the species and the viruses they carry, we can have a better idea of where they are taking the viruses.
1: Today, we're exploring how studying the relationship between humans and animals could help prevent future pandemics.
4: The best way in the future of preventing pandemics is this pandemic.
1: This is a topic that I've been following, writing, and increasingly worrying about for more than a decade. Speaking to scientists, I can't remember a time when they haven't been warning about the disastrous effects of a new virus. They've been predicting that it would one day emerge from animals, rip through human populations, and cause catastrophe. In 2018, the World Health Organization even gave this future threat a name Disease X. The contours of the current pandemic fit these predictions to the letter. There have been warnings in the past. Rather than waiting for new viruses to emerge, some scientists have been searching them out.
4: We were just essentially going around in circles trying to find things, and we did find things.
1: Stephen Baker is a professor of microbiology at the University of Cambridge. He led Visions a major study of emerging infectious diseases in Vietnam that ran from 2011 to 2017.
4: But if we'd have been doing that same project in Wuhan this year, then I'd be winning the Nobel Prize in 2021 for actually understanding this whole process and having everything documented from before the outbreak, during the outbreak and then longitudinally afterwards in humans and animals. As it happens, we we're doing the right thing, just not at the right time in the right place.
1: In 2013, I visited Stephen in Ho Chi Minh City to find out more about his work.
4: That was essentially two large components. One was trying to identify people in hospital with a disease of an unknown origin. So something that was different to everything else, something that they'd been screened for that was not associated with a classical virus or bacteria that we would know caused that infection. But then also then, correspondingly, in the same population, sampling people and animals that were in daily or regular contact with one another, hypothesizing that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in people that are having more day-to-day contact with animals. That's exactly what happened, right? It's people working in wet markets in China. I mean, it's exactly what we were trying to do. Uh, And it just seems amazing that actually that whole scenario completely played out in front of us. And possibly then everybody was too slow to react to really understand what was going on in real time in China.
1: Stephen Baker's sampling teams visited farms, markets and abattoirs across Vietnam to take blood and faecal samples from pigs, chickens, dogs, cats and rats, and anything else living nearby. They also analysed regular blood samples from people at high risk of being subject to animal to human transmission. Visions was a small project, and while it may not have been big enough to discover something like SARS-CoV-2, it did demonstrate the kind of surveillance you need to understand what viruses are moving between animals and people. A few years before vision started, in 2009, another group of scientists in America had created PREDICT. This would eventually become the world's largest project to find new human pathogens. Over the decade that they worked, PREDICT scientists discovered 1,200 new viruses with the potential to infect humans. 160 of them were coronaviruses.
5: It really came out of the avian influenza experience of 2005, 2006, 2007.
1: Dennis Carroll was one of the founders of the project.
5: And in working in that space for about two and a half, three years, it sort of began raising questions as to whether or not that dynamic of wildlife, livestock, people uh, was unique to avian influenza, or whether it was really reflective of a much larger dynamic involving emerging viral threats at large. When we talk about coronaviruses or filoviruses, how many are out there that we don't know about? And that number was about 1.6, 1.7 million viruses. And estimating about 600,000 plus or minus may have the potential to actually infect people. So the PREDICT was really an attempt to say, well, can we really move what had been academic science into exploring the viruses in wildlife? Can we establish it as potentially an arm of the global health portfolio? Could it become a backbone? of a new surveillance ability to identify future threats before they spill over into us? And could we use that knowledge about where viruses are circulating, what animals they're in, what might even be the hotspots, how we could granularize understanding. And could we get insights into the genetic profiles of viruses in ways that allowed us to be far more forward leaning if we began developing a catalogue of this data.
1: Jonna Mazet is an epidemiologist at the University of California, Davis, and the global director of the PREDICT project. Some of her work involved extracting the genetic material from samples to find out what viruses were present.
3: We extract the RNA, then we make cDNA. We would go and sequence that to speciate it. And if it was in uh, our highest priority, then we would sequence the whole genome.
1: The advances in genome sequencing technology have been revolutionary, as Stephen Baker explains.
4: Next-generation sequencing didn't exist 20 years ago. So, you know, pulling out the genetic information from someone's respiratory swab in Wuhan was unthinkable until 10 years ago, perhaps. So not only then has our ability to actually make these things happen changed, but our ability to understand them quicker has also changed.
1: So scientists can identify and analyse new viruses. But how can they find out if an animal born virus can infect humans?
4: We know how they work. We know what sars coronavirus 2 binds to. We know what influenza things bind to. That you can do it from genetic material that you can identify how likely they are to bind to certain receptors in the respiratory tract of humans or other animals. And also, you could then infect cells Uh, in a laboratory and see how well they stick and then predict their potential virulence.
3: We need to be looking at the morphology of the virus. We're looking at spike proteins that are generated by coronaviruses because they're the key to enter into the cells. And we've done that and are working on that with some of the best experts in coronaviruses. We've even looked at things like how many species are in the area, how the land use is changing. And we pull from, I think, 30 international publicly sourced databases.
1: But which species can host these viruses?
4: Ebola and things. Bats obviously play a crucial role, Uh, but but poultry are essentially ubiquitous. Cheeks are a very good mixing vessel because they often share receptors with humans.
1: That's Jeremy Farrar, an infectious disease doctor who helped set up the Visions Project in Vietnam almost a decade ago. He now heads the Wellcome Trust, one of the largest medical research charities in the world. He spoke to me on the phone. And then of course there's a huge number of animals, mammals,
4: that we don't know about. I mean clearly the Covid-19 emerged from bats, we don't know what the intermediate host was, and we don't understand the species barrier. We don't really
1: understand what it is that protects the human race from these viruses coming across uh, the whole time. Jeremy told me about the importance of surveillance, not only on the animals that could be the hosts for new pathogens, but also on the humans that have been hospitalized after being infected by unknown viruses. This approach has been effective, as Jonah Mazet from PREDICT explains.
3: We in fact identified a new filovirus, a new species of filovirus that was circulating again in West Africa, not the one that caused the outbreak, but another one like Marburg virus that we also identified that way to say, OK, you have risky viruses here that may have not even made people sick yet. It is quite likely that these viruses are spilling over and it's just the perfect combination of environmental and societal factors that let it take flight. And we wanna know about those too and that's why we're collecting so much metadata.
1: One possible way that this filovirus was transmitted to humans was through bat excrement or guano being used as fertilizer.
3: So we were doing surveys of people at all the sites where we were picking up the viral samples. People started to give us samples, so we were triangulating, able to sample people at high-risk interfaces, for example, people who harvest bat guano, but also we sampled clinically sick people that pulled into hospitals and clinics from those basins to be able to see what was going on in their communities when they had fevers of unknown origin. And now we're putting all of that data together to really put forward the better risk profile for the places we worked.
1: PREDICT operated for a decade in 30 countries, but it only scratched the surface. In 2018, Jonah Mazet, with Dennis Carroll and Peter Dazak, a disease ecologist, proposed a much bigger idea, the Global Virome Project, or GVP for short. The aim of this project is to find and genetically sequence the millions of as-yet-undiscovered animal viruses in the wild. This would help to find and predict future disease outbreaks. John Mazet again.
3: So the project provided the proof of concept that we can find the next viruses and we can understand all the transmission risks so that we can do some mitigation, behavior change. We can also find the hosts, all the different hosts and risk factors for those known bad actors. And hopefully we could start to actually be ready with diagnostics and get ready for broader based therapeutics, broader based vaccines. And I don't believe that we can do that well without really understanding what's out there. Because of this terrible tragedy, we'll know that for coronaviruses, but I worry that human nature is to be complacent. And so now we say, okay, we have to worry about influenza and coronas, but paramyxos that measles come from and filos that are still a big threat, I think people put on the back burner. And I really believe that through the Global virome Project and the momentum, we can do things differently.
1: Coming up. Once you know about a virus, what do you do about it? And how can you pinpoint the ones that might become deadly?
0: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys. with Good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move.
1: This is Babbage from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Char. Some recent disease outbreaks that caused concern, such as the H5N1 avian influenza in the mid-2000s or Ebola in the mid-2010s, have had much higher fatality rates than SARS-CoV-2. But neither ended up causing the global disruption of COVID-19. As part of their work, scientists at PREDICT devised a ranking system to allow public health officials to compare the risks of different viruses.
3: We've identified 40 different risk factors.
1: Epidemiologist John Amazet again.
3: And we actually used uh, experts in this field from all over the world to help weigh in on the relative risk of those 40 risk factors and how they should be weighted in evaluating when we find a new virus, how likely it is to spill over into people. We also have some idea of how likely it is to go human to human spread, but this first step is the spillover piece. And interestingly, and some of our other papers that have come out of PREDICT have helped us to identify this, how many hosts and how different those hosts are, which we call host plasticity, Is really a huge indicator of how likely these viruses are to be able to infect, spill over into people, and then go human to human spread.
1: Spillover is when an animal virus successfully infects a person. It has been a fact of life for thousands of years. When people began to live in large, fixed settlements and near to animals that they had domesticated, the opportunities for viruses to jump back and forth between those animals and humans got bigger. This process, called viral chatter, goes on today. However, today there are even more people, and their settlements are growing ever bigger, encroaching onto ever more pristine jungles and rainforests. Climate change is also changing where animals and people can live. All of that means that more wild animals are coming into contact with more humans, meaning more chances for spillover. The only way to keep track of which viruses are spilling over is with surveillance of animals and humans in potential hotspots around the world.
2: If you look at COVID-19 as an example, PREDICT allowed us to get on the ground in China, showing clearly that these were a bat-origin virus and that SARS-CoV-2 emerged from a clade of coronaviruses in rural China or even in the
1: neighbouring countries. Peter Daszak is president of EcoHealth Alliance, a non-governmental organization that supports global health programs. And what we've done with that work
2: is find these viruses, just the genetic sequences, get them into the hands of people who are working on experimental drugs that not only affect SARS, coronavirus in the lab, but also MERS. And then they've used these sequences to show that those drugs, and one of them is remdesivir, which is right now the only drug with clinical trials that shows definitive evidence that it actually works against COVID-19.
1: Projects such as PREDICT could help scientists to prepare. By knowing what's out there, by cataloguing the genetics of viruses, scientists could begin to develop treatments and vaccines against those considered most deadly, even before they got into humans.
2: Well, the people who were designing is used the viruses we were discovering through PREDICT Just the genetic sequences only, that's all they need to show that remdesivir works against a broad range of viruses, including potential future pandemics. Now we didn't stop COVID-19 with that work, but we're just one group working with one grant collaborating with labs around the world. If we scale this up one order of magnitude, you're still talking about a cost of a few billion dollars. If we could do that at that scale, I really believe we will start to prevent these pandemics. You know, we're not going to defeat the pandemic era by waiting for vaccines. We need to get ahead of the
1: curve on this stuff. That's what the GVP is all about. Studying viruses allows scientists to understand the scale and risk of potential pathogens that could infect humans. But what more needs to be done to prevent a pandemic? Back to Stephen Baker.
4: Those projects like the one in Vietnam and like PREDICT and other things, they were really good at identifying viral families and understanding how likely these things were to spread, but they didn't identify the next pandemic, right? And I think that people tended to get a bit bored or distracted by other things and then this, this whole area of zoonotic viruses seemed to slow down. An argument you could make is that probably the best way in the future of preventing pandemics is this pandemic. Because people will remember this and will remember what it was like when they had people in their family that were in hospital or people that they knew of that were dying or they spent six weeks at home homeschooling, thinking how terrible it all was and thinking we don't really want to do this again. And also realizing the potential impact longitudinally on the population of both their mental health Uh, their financial well-being and also their education of all these things and actually understanding this now seems like a very very important thing to do in the future because it's likely at some point it was going to happen again.
3: We really need to sample almost all of the species on earth mammals and water birds because they're the hosts and so if we understand the species and the viruses they carry we can map where those species go and have a better idea of where they are taking the viruses. So you don't have to do the whole world. I personally believe, and when we did the targeting that almost $4 billion, that is for the whole world. But we can scale it back and not do the whole world, but still do all the species, and we will be very close. And that's uh, just over a billion dollars. So again, when we were talking about Things like SARS and MERS and talking about outbreaks that were large but on the order of $40 billion, it was still less than 10% of one of those outbreaks to do this. Now, we're not going to stop all of them by doing this, but we'll be ready to control them at their source.
1: The Global Virome Project has not yet received the funding it needs to operate, but its importance seems hard to deny it would be able to identify all the viruses in animals of interest. But that's not enough. Scientists also need to know what's turning up in humans in emerging disease hotspots. This is the core of a proposal known as the Global Immunological Observatory. Here, doctors would routinely monitor blood banks and discarded clinical blood samples. All of that would be to hunt for new viruses in human blood. And if they identified a new disease outbreak, blood samples would also allow doctors to go back in time to see when the virus first appeared in humans and how people's immune systems had been responding to the new infection. Global scientific cooperation is key to successful prevention of future pandemics, but so is political will and the willingness to share information. The scientific tools to stop pandemics have been around for some time. Will COVID-19, and the damage it has wreaked, finally persuade politicians and others around the world to take the scientists' warnings more seriously? Peter Dazak.
2: We have huge concerns around working with other countries. So right now, we know China's um, a hotspot for bat-origin coronaviruses. We're having real trouble right now working with China on this because of geopolitics. We know that other countries that aren't allies of UK and US and Western countries are where viruses emerge. We're going to have to get over that. The other thing is we have surveillance issues that are going to be ethically demanding. You know, what is it when you go out to these countries like Indonesia and you find viruses that you want to develop a vaccine for, who owns the profits from that vaccine if it becomes profitable? That's already been a big issue. And we were grappling with some of those issues right now with the GVP.
1: These are difficult challenges for sure, but it's hard to think of a better time to try than now we don't need to
4: reinvent the wheel. We just need to commit to doing the things which, you know, frankly, many people argued for in the post-SARS era. And we've got to develop the technology so that we can use 21st century interventions as opposed to, very important, but hand-washing, masks, and social distancing were all things that were practiced in the 19th century. And we need to bring this into the 21st century. And I I think these tragic events will actually catalyze that thinking, I hope, in a way that takes us to a much better place than we
5: have been. Right now, COVID-19 has everyone's attention, everyone's interested in this. A year out from now, if COVID-19 sort of attenuates itself and disappears, it will fall off the radar screen, the budgets will collapse, and we'll be right back where we have. We've seen this cycle after cycle, mm-hmm. whether it was you know, with SARS, then avian influenza, then H1N1. After H1N1, there was a freefall, there was flu fatigue. Everyone got tired of hearing about this stuff. We need to be able to think of viruses in a way as real and as tangible as an arch enemy like the Soviet Union or Spectre, right? Whatever you might want to think about.
1: And there's little time to lose. These threats are coming all the time. Just this week, a new strain of the H1N1 swine flu emerged in China. Scientists think it could have pandemic potential. This latest emerging infection shows the importance of catching viruses before they can spread between humans. That's all for this episode of Babbage. Our thanks to John and Mazet, Dennis Carroll, Stephen Baker, Jeremy Farrar, and Peter Daszak. You can read more on how to pandemic-proof our planet by subscribing to The Economist. To get the best introductory offer for wherever you are, visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. I'm Alok Jha, and at home in London, still isolating from the present pandemic, this is The Economist.